The differences between single-celled organisms and cells within a sort of a community is because their sort of overriding paradigm has changed from a sort of single cell where you compete with everybody else to a model where you have to cooperate. And that's the difference between cancer cells and normal cells is that cancer cells, they do everything for themselves. If you have a cancer cell, the way that you control it, the last thing, is that you're decreasing Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, this episode is so special and so meaningful for me personally. So not even when I started this show, but when I started the Intermittent Fasting Podcast about three years ago now, which is crazy, I was completely new to the podcasting world. I didn't know how successful that show would be. I didn't know I would ultimately have this show as well, which is truly my passion and one of the greatest joys of my life. But if you had asked me back then, which guests would I just be so overwhelmed with gratitude and feelings of surrealness to interview? That hands down would have been Dr. Jason Fung. He is honestly the go-to authority in the fasting world. He has been on my dream list to talk to. And so bringing him on the show now is such a surreal moment. And what's really wonderful is, of course, when I initially anticipated ever interviewing him, I thought it would be mostly about fasting, but the timing of everything, he released the new book, The Cancer Code, and that book blew my mind about cancer. I don't have much personal experience with cancer. It has affected some members of my family but I honestly haven't done a lot of research on it. So I am just so honored for the information and the things that I learned in his book and that I get to talk to him and share this conversation with you guys. I just am so, so excited for you guys to listen and tell me what you think. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers. Intermittent fasting plus real foods plus life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. Also, Friends, follow me on Instagram. I promise. I'm trying. I'm really trying. The show notes for this episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash cancer. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. Also something really, really appropriate that I learned in this episode that I have. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Jason Fung. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so honored and thrilled about the conversation that I am about to have. I feel like it is a long time coming. So for listeners, as you guys know, I am also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. And one of the figures who comes up on that show all the time, in a good way, <laughs> is a fantastic Mr. Jason Fung. He is, I mean, he really needs no introduction. He is a figure in the whole world of obesity, metabolism, fasting, really one of the go-to figures for all of that. His, his previous books, I'm sure most of you have read. He has The Diabetes Code, The Obesity Code, The Complete Guide to Fasting. I've been a fan and a follower of his work for so long, so I'd been done 
trying to connect with him on this show. And I thought it would be about fasting, but the timing was absolutely perfect in that he released a new book called The Cancer Code. And friends, this book, I admittedly, prior to this book, hadn't really done a lot of research myself on cancer. And reading this book was, well, first of all, it read almost more like a suspense mystery novel than a science book. It was so fascinating and the history of cancer and what is going on with that and the future and what paradigm is actually needed. But that will be the topic of today's show. So Jason, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So to start things off, I'm actually really, really curious. So like I said, my listeners are probably pretty familiar with you, but you know, your prior work has been a lot with fasting, metabolism, obesity, things like that. What sparked your interest in writing a book on cancer? Was it just a natural progression of your work or what was the inciting incident that led to that? Well, it started out sort of as a natural extension about obesity because there's a link between obesity, type 2 diabetes and cancer, which has not been very well appreciated by most you know, researchers until relatively recently. So, you know, if we go back a little bit, you know, in the 80s and 90s and so on, nobody really talked about that. It wasn't until the obesity epidemic really got going in the 2000s, 2010s, that we really saw that there was a clear link between certain types of cancer, such as breast cancer and colorectal cancer, and obesity and type 2 diabetes. So that's where sort of my interest in the topic started. So I, I, I started looking into the the link. And then it became something different than what I thought it would be because I started sort of learning about some of the new ways that we're we're thinking about cancer. And the, the story to me was absolutely fascinating in the way that, you know, views have changed in terms of what this disease is, uh, what it represents, and uh, what causes cancer sort of thing. So, you know, it got drawn, the book got kind of drawn into a slightly different direction from the one I had intended, but, you know, in a way that I thought was extremely interesting. And not, I have to say, something that I think is written about very much, like nobody talks about it. For such a massively important topic, there's virtually zero discussion about what this disease is, like what is cancer? And that's, that's sort of that takes up the first sort of half or two thirds of the book is a, a real discussion about what that question is. So nothing much to do with, you know, fasting or anything like that, but, you know, really just a, just a really interesting sort of dis, discussion of that topic. So that's, that's how it sort of came about. It was just that the, the topic itself was so fascinating that I thought, well, you know, if nobody else is going to write about it, then I need to write about it. It's, it's interesting to me. That is so true. And maybe that explains partly why, like I said, I myself hadn't done a lot of research on it because people aren't really talking about it. I think, you know, people's lives will get touched by it and then they might look into particular treatments for whatever type of cancer they or their loved one experiences. But in general, there's not a lot of just I don't want to say like every day, but everyday conversation surrounding it. And like when I picked up the book, I really had no idea what to expect. But like I said, it, it's fascinating. And like you just said, friends, listeners, you have to just get the book because it's it's really long and there's a lot in there. But you go through the whole history of cancer and how it was viewed 
throughout history, you know, starting back with like the humors and bile and, and then even ideas of it being a virus and all these different manifestations and theories as to what it is. But could you talk briefly about the biggest dominating paradigms that there have been? Because you present a new paradigm in the book, but, you know, prior to this, there was the idea of, you know, excessive growth and then somatic mutation theory. So what has been the general dominating paradigms and why are those not complete? Yeah, so this is the sort of interesting part is that the paradigms of cancer, that is how we think about cancer as a disease really is important, even though nobody talks about it, because it guides your entire treatment focus. So we've kind of come through three sort of major paradigms of cancer, modern paradigms anyway, humors was sort of a Greek, sort of ancient Greece paradigm. But the first modern paradigm was this cancer is a disease of cells that basically grow too much. And so if there are cells that grow too much, then let's find ways to kill those cells. That's basically the, the, the whole you know, major pillar of modern oncology treatment. Let's find ways to kill cells. So there's surgery, for example, where you can cut, cut out cancers and you can use radiation so you can burn those cancers. And you can use chemotherapy, which is a, basically a type of poison. So these are things that destroy cells and destroy cancer cells slightly more than they destroy regular cells. But all of them are, in essence, sort of ways to kill because you have things that grow too much. So that's a logical extension. And that's sort of what took us to where we are. It's a big advance at the time because, of course, there was no easy treatment for cancer prior to that. So chemotherapy, what happened, of course, is that they developed chemotherapy, then they developed different ways to combine chemotherapy with the other agents. You know, that's how we came. But it didn't answer the deeper question. That is, if it's a cell that grows too much, then why is it growing so much? And that's the question that we need to answer in order to get sort of a deeper understanding of what cancer actually is. So by the 60s and 70s, we came through the you know knowledge of genetics and so on and we thought okay well here's the answer then we have cells and they have genes and genes control cell growth so therefore if you have a cell that is growing too much it's because the gene that controls that growth has become mutated and therefore changes the cell growth so the idea was that this is sort of a random mutation and this is the so-called somatic mutation theory, which is that if you take something like smoking, for example, tobacco smoking, well, it causes lung cancer. We know that. But it's not a targeted gene mutation way to mutate your gene. It's basically a way that damages cells so that because it damages cells, it damages DNA, it can introduce mutations. And if you have a lot of mutations in genes, one of them randomly may hit a very important growth signaling gene and therefore you get excessive growth. So the, the idea was that just like if you buy more lottery tickets, you'll hit the lottery, you, you have a better chance of hitting the jackpot. If you have a lot of mutations, there's going to be more chances that one of them will hit this critical gene and turn it into a cancer. So it seemed to make a lot of sense. So this is the sort of second great paradigm of cancer. So now if you say, okay, well, this is a disease of gene mutations, and this is the dominant paradigm 
that we've lived under for the last sort of 40 years. So if you go to the American Cancer Society website, they'll still tell you that cancer is a disease of gene mutations. And, you know, lo and behold, you looked at cancers and there were these gene mutations. So again, the reason it's important is because if you have a paradigm of cancer that is saying this is a disease of gene mutations that causes excessive growth, now you design treatments to fix those genes. You don't design treatments to kill cells, you design treatments to fix genes. So the first couple of treatments that we had were incredibly good. They basically cured certain types of cancer. So yes, they were rare cancers, but it proved the paradigm. And one of the mutations of breast cancer, for example, the HER2 gene, it also did extremely well. So now we had this so-called targeted treatment, but it was more than that with the sort of what you could do is in fact look for these gene mutations and then only treat those people that had those gene mutations and not everybody. So now we are getting into the realm of personalized medicine and targeted therapy, so personalized targeted treatment. And, and by the 2000s, we were thinking, okay, well, this is it. We're going to cure cancer because all we need to do is map out all the genes, look for all these growth signaling areas, find the mutations, you know, the two or three or four mutations of each cancer, and then devise ways to block it, right? You have a cancer paradigm of genetic mutation. You design treatments to fix those gene mutations and you're going to cure cancer. So this was a sort of huge optimism that we had in the 2000s. And so we completed the Human Genome Project, which mapped the genes of an entire human being. And what happened, of course, is that we didn't cure cancer. And so we did an even more ambitious research project called the Cancer Genome Atlas. So instead of surveying one human genome, we surveyed 33,000 cancer genomes. So, you know, you take a couple thousand breast cancers and compare them and say, okay, well, look, this is the gene that's important for breast cancer. And we thought, okay, well, we just need to identify these two or three or four. But unfortunately, it didn't turn out the way we thought it would. So instead of most common cancers having one or two gene mutations, a breast cancer or colorectal cancer, for example, had like a hundred gene mutations. And that's a real problem. So if you had two people in a breast cancer clinic, for example, with breast cancers that looked identical, you'd have patient A with a hundred gene mutations and patient B in the chair next to her with a hundred completely different gene mutations. So if you're trying to treat these people, it's a real problem because you can't make, you can't, and you can't give a hundred different drugs and develop a hundred different drugs for the person sitting right next to her. It's basically an impossible task. So by last count, when we got to 2018, when they said, well, how many gene mutations have we found in cancer? You're talking about something on the order of 6 million gene mutations in cancer. So this is a huge problem because it's simply not something that you can treat any longer because you can't make those many drugs and it's, it's always changing. There's differences in genes between patients, between you know, a primary cancer and a metastatic cancer. It's just genetic you know, variety everywhere. So this is what led to 
the real slowdown in advance of cancer therapeutics. We simply couldn't develop these drugs, and so therefore, there was no good treatments. The treatments were stuck in, you know, the 60s, you know, chemotherapy and so on. So that's sort of what happened by the 2010s. We sort of hit rock bottom. And if you look at, you know, what happened in cancer, of course, is that if you look at the number of deaths in cancer compared to overall, it's, the, it's always been the number two killer of Americans. Heart disease has always been number one. So in the 70s, you're sort of twice as likely to die of heart disease compared to cancer. And now they're basically neck and neck. So where people have made huge progress in treating heart disease, there's been virtually, comparatively very little progress in treating cancer. And the reason is that that paradigm that we sort of focused on simply couldn't deliver any treatments. So that's sort of where I was, like that's as much as I knew about cancer, but it turns out that the story was far more interesting. And we've sort of gone in a brand new direction and we've gone into the sort of third great paradigm of cancer treatment, which is, again, doesn't invalidate any of the paradigms that came before it, but basically went another step further to say, well, if genes are mutating in cancer, then what is sort of causing the genes to mutate? And it turns out that this is sort of an evolutionary process and a, not a sort of forwards evolution, but sort of this backwards evolution into a more primitive sort of survivalist cell, if you will, a sort of a backwards evolution to a more primitive state. And that's likely what's happening in cancer. But again, the reason that's important is because it informs different treatments. So instead of saying, you know, let's fix genes, what we can say is that, hey, this cancer is actually a cell that's mutating into a sort of foreign invasive species. And the, the body actually has a way to deal with foreign invasive species. We have an immune system. And therefore, we can bolster the immune system. And this has opened up a whole new area of treatment called immunotherapy, which now sort of gives hope that we might be able to do something in the future. We can also apply sort of the lessons of evolutionary biology, because it's an evolutionary process, to the cancer problem. And we can do things like adaptive therapy, which is instead of just giving the maximum dose, Maybe we have to time it a little bit better. So, you know, all these new treatments, which are coming out of this sort of new paradigm of understanding that it's an evolutionary process. And there's a lot of, you know, I spend a lot of time going over the evidence for this, and it really answers a lot of the sort of key questions that the genetic paradigm left wide open, which was there's a lot of holes in that theory. It didn't explain anything. Whereas the evolutionary process takes that into account, but takes it a step further, takes our understanding sort of a step further in trying to define what this disease is. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like 100 brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. 
Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Yeah, this is so fascinating. So some questions about the the somatic theory, which was, you know, such a dominating theory. So those mutations in cancer, were they all related to growth or were they mutations for different characteristics that, that they were looking for as the traits? Yeah, there was actually a whole lot of different mutations. And there was a, a number of ways that cancer cells differed from regular cells. So, you know, they grew, but they also exhibited other traits. That is, the cells became immortal cells. That is, if you take a human cell, you know, and just grow it in a, in a lab somewhere, it will only divide a certain number of times before it will stop. The cell line cannot propagate itself indefinitely. Cancer cells, as well as sort of single-celled organisms, well, so if you take a bacteria and you grow it and grow it and grow it and just keep going, it will go on forever. Cancer cells do the same thing. So one sort of very famous example of that is the, the story sort of of Henrietta Lacks, which is a lady in the 30s, I think, who had can- uh, cervical cancer. They took her cells without her permission, I might add, because they didn't you know, do it very ethically. But they took her cancer cells and they've kept growing them sort of for the last 80 years or whatever. And the cell keeps growing. So you, as long as you give it nutrients, you can take some cells out, keep growing it, keep growing, keep growing it. So they're immortal cells. The other thing is these cells tend to move around and so on. So there's a lot of different things about cancer cells, which are different than normal cells, which is strange if you think about it, because remember that these cancerous cells are derived from our own normal cells in everybody. So, uh, you know, if person A has a cancer and person B has a cancer, these cells have sort of turned into cancerous cells independently from each other and from every other person in history. So the question is, how can that be? So that's a very interesting question, because if you say these genes have mutated, you can mutate genes in a hundred, you know, a hundred thousand different ways. Why would all the cancers look alike at the end of that? And that's, you know, one of the questions that the somatic mutation theory, because it says, you know, it's a random mutation. 
Well, it should lead to sort of infinite variety. Cancer should look completely different from one person to the other. Just like if I gave you a pencil and a paper and said, draw something, you're not going to draw the exact same thing as me, right? Because we're different. If we don't talk to each other or see each other, we're going to come up with something completely different. Cancer is the same. If cancer is moving, say a breast cell is moving towards a breast cancer cell, since they're evolving independently, why do they look exactly the same at the end of it? Which is a fascinating question and one that the somatic mutation theory could never answer, but one that the evolutionary theory does. And it says that, well, because you're moving towards a more primitive form, as we evolved, we all had that same original sort of cell blueprint, and therefore that's why. So it's a, it's, a, it's a super interesting theory with a lot of really important sort of, you know, implications as to uh, how we should treat it and how we should further research it and so on. And, you know, the other thing I think fascinating, of course, is that it, it gets almost zero sort of attention. So is it sort of like, let's say that cancer is a robber, for example, is it sort of like in the mutation theory, it would be like trying to find a robber by looking at the different characteristics that a robber might have. So like, you know, a pistol or literal things that the robber might have, or they might more likely be a male, or I mean, I don't want to make generalizations, but like characteristics about them. And then trying to just address those things in the general population to get rid of robbers compared to the idea that anybody can actually become a robber. They just need to have the reason to do it and like attacking that, that reason. I think that's, that's, that's the sort of move from saying, you know, we go and say, okay, well, if you have a robber, then, you know, what we've always said is that, well, you know, what was wrong with them sort of thing? How are they different from other people? As opposed to saying that, well, anybody can become a robber given the right circumstance. Like, family is starving and you have to steal to feed them. Well, I think most people in that situation may well become a robber because you, you know, you, you take that sort of step in that you have to take care of, you know, a starving child or whatever it is. Right. So the, the idea is that cancer is exactly the same. It's not that it's an unusual thing. It's not that it's so different. It came from us. It is, it is evolved from a normal cell. But what is the circumstance that made it into a cancer cell? And this gets into this sort of idea that this is the, not just the, you know, the, the, the seed, but the seed and the soil. That is, that potential to become a robber exists in everybody. But what is it about that circumstance that is going to make him into it? And the same with the cancer. So any cell in the body has that potential to become a cancer because it is a sort of evolutionarily sort of earlier remnant. So that kernel of cancer exists in all of our cells and all animals, basically. And what is it about the soil that allows this cancer seed to sort of bloom as opposed to stay dormant? And that's the important thing, because when we focus on the genetics, we focus just on the seed. And you know, you can't do anything about your genetics. Like you can't change them. I can't change them. So there was this sort of fatalistic, well, if you get cancer, that's just, you know, a bad roll of the dice sort of thing. But it's not. There's so much that we can do to influence our risk of cancer. 
because it's the soil that provides the necessary sort of growing conditions for the evolution of your normal cell into a cancerous cell. And so that's where the diet and lifestyle and all these sort of things comes in. So it's interesting when you look at the sort of determinants of cancer that most people think it's just genetics, but genetics plays actually an incredibly small part of, you know, what causes cancer. Like age is a big thing, of course, but can't do anything about that. So you might as well forget about it. But other things like the diet plays a huge role. So if you look at diet, for example, it actually, the, its role in ca- cancer causation is very close to that of tobacco at this point. And actually far outstrips any other risk factor by a long shot. So all the stuff we worry about, like, you know, radiation and chemicals and pesticides and herbicides and all these sorts of things, they actually are maybe one or 2% of cancer causation compared to diet, which is somewhere around 30%, and tobacco smoke, which is about 35%. So you know, it, it's, it's at the same time that it's interesting. It's also hopeful because it's like, look, if we can understand what causes cancer, then we can, we can try and prevent, prevent it. I mean, it's not a one-time thing. It's not like you do this and you'll prevent cancer, but it's, it's over your lifetime, you're going to be able to make the sort of soil hostile to cancerous growth. And that's what's really important, being able to control it in the end you talk about the difference between proximate and root causes. So by all of that logic, is the actual root cause of cancer carcinogens or carcinogenic lifestyles, diet? Like, is that the actual cause or is it something else like we, like we talked about, like the, the actual characteristics that come about from those causes? Yeah. And I think that's where like uh, diet plays a big role as does other things like tobacco smoke, for example, and asbestos and viruses or for certain types of cancer. So cervical cancer, for example, is largely caused by human papillomavirus, right? So what's important, of course, is that when you talk about proximate causes and root causes, it's really, really important to treat the sort of root cause, not the proximate cause. So, you know, to, to, to differentiate, you have to say, well, the proximate cause is sort of what goes right before, but it's not sort of what's most important. So, for example, if you, um, you know, have an airplane, you say airplanes, they fly because lift is greater than, you know, weight. So the proximate cause, you might say, well, if a plane crashes, it's because, you know, the force of gravity is more than the force of lift. That's true. But it's not really useful, right? Because it's like, if you were to say, treat the proximate cause, you'd say, well, in order to prevent plane crashes, all you need is bigger wings because you have more lift, right? That's it. That's, that's all you need to do. And it's like, well, small wings is not the cause of most plane crashes. It's weather or it's pilot error or it's whatever it is. So then you say, okay, well, if the ultimate cause is actually pilot error, then you need better pilot training. And that's going to prevent your, your plane crash, not bigger wings. So the the sort of treating the proximate cause is such a sort of a reactionary sort of thing. It seems like it's useful, but ultimately it's not useful. That is to say, if you were to say, let's take the example of lung cancers. 
And we've identified a whole bunch of different gene mutations in lung cancer. So if you're to say what causes lung cancer, what is more correct? If I say it's a mutation in ALK1 gene or tobacco smoke causes cancer, right? You got to get to the tobacco smoke because then you say, well, then to prevent lung cancer, stop smoking. That's treating the ultimate cause. Whereas saying, I'm going to make a drug to treat the ALK1 gene mutation. Well, that's approximate cause and you're not going to get very far. Like you might get somewhere, but not very far by doing that. And the problem, of course, is that we spent so much time and money trying to figure out the proximate cause, which is the gene mutation, instead of the ultimate cause, which is, hey, stop smoking. So, you know, we figured it out for for smoking, of course, and asbestos, but there's a lot of other cancers like breast cancer where there's a huge, huge risk. So we talk about these gene mutations and so on. But the thing is that if you take a Japanese woman in Japan and move her to San Francisco, within a couple of generations, her risk of breast cancer like doubles or triples, even though she marries Japanese people. So there's no change in the genetics. What's changed is the, is the diet and the lifestyle. It's placed such a huge overwhelming factor. Same with colorectal cancer. So in the 1950s, Dennis Burkett in Africa observed that the Africans who were eating a traditional African diet and following a traditional African lifestyle did not get colorectal cancer. When those same Africans adopted a sort of Western lifestyle, mostly with refined grains and sugar, they got cancer. So again, not the genes, it's the lifestyle. So now you're getting to the sort of root cause, which is the lifestyle. And then to focus so much and say, oh, well, you know, these Africans got colon cancer because they have the mutation in gene XYZ. It's like, no, that's the proximate cause. They got cancer because their diet and lifestyle changed to a more westernized diet and lifestyle. We know that that's the cause. So, you know, getting to that ultimate cause is so important, yet we got sort of, for for many years, we got sort of stuck on trying to, to identify all these intervening sort of steps without making much progress. And that's why, you know, hopefully as we develop new tools and so on, you know, and that's where understanding the sort of bigger level, sort of higher level view of cancer, like what is this disease? What is the paradigm that we have to follow? Because that's how you're going to develop, you know, new and effective treatments rather than focusing on the same thing. But, you know, everywhere you look, you know, to, to you know, every, everything you read about these days, in terms of cancer, is still stuck in that old paradigm. This is a disease of gene mutations. It's nobody's fault. You know, we can't control our genes. It's just bad luck that causes cancer. It's like, there's luck. For sure there is. But there's so much more to it than that. And to say that it's just luck is sort of, it's not correct. And it doesn't help people. It's kind of echoes being stuck in like the calories in, calories out model or a lot of the other paradigms that we've had. And health that we can't seem to crawl out of. So there was a part of the book where literally my mouth dropped open. I was so on the edge of my seat. And it was when you 
you lay out the different characteristics of unicellular versus multicellular life and the, the differences and the comparisons there, basically how their differences and comparisons in growth and their movement and their immortality and how they generate energy and how it perfectly aligns with cancer cells. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because I just found that completely mind-blowing. Yeah, I like honestly, I, I was totally blown away by that myself because I didn't know any of that. It was just as I was reading it, I was sort of learning about this new paradigm that some oncologists were going into, but really only like the researchers and stuff, and nobody had ever talked about it. But the idea was that if you look at the way that single-celled organisms are different than multi-celled organisms. So remember, all our body is composed of sort of trillions of cells, but the most primitive organisms are only one cell. So it's sort of like if you live in New York City, for example, which is a city with you know millions of people compared to a sort of lone survivalist in the woods, there's a big difference. So the survivalist in the woods, he has to do everything himself. He can't specialize and you're always going to be small. But the differences between single-celled organisms and cells within a sort of a community or a city, if you will, of cells is completely different because their sort of overriding paradigm has changed from a sort of single cell where you compete with everybody else to a model where you have to cooperate with everybody else. So, you know, the survivalist in the city, he has to compete with everything for, for, for resources. In the city, you actually try and help each other. That allows you to become specialized and same thing in our body. So our liver becomes specialized to do a certain thing, but it can't do other things. We rely on other cells to do that. So that's the difference between a single-celled organism and a multi-celled organism. And that's the difference between cancer cells and normal cells is that cancer cells act almost exactly like a single-celled organism. So you know when you're looking at cancer cells, they do everything for themselves, just like a single-celled organism. Remember, in our bodies, our, our cells are part of a team. So everything has a certain goal to make a winning team. So your liver doesn't compete with your heart, for example, you know, for resources. It's divided. You've you got a common goal. Just like if you have a soccer team, everybody's trying to you know, win the game. So certain players will be in goal and certain players will try and score and certain players will try to defend. So you each have your role and you do your role in a, in a very specialized and efficient manner, as opposed to say tennis, which is a single person game where you must do everything yourself. You have to hit backhands, forehands, whatever, serving. Everything is on you. So the point is that cancer cells are this sort of movement from a cell within a community back towards a cell that now is trying to survive on its own sort of thing. So it's, and the problem is that when this cancerous transformation happens and it turns into from some this cooperative sort of strategy into this original sort of competitive strategy, that's when it becomes a problem because that liver cancer cell now is trying to survive for itself only. Its goal is to, you know, to, it, it tries to grow, it tries to move around, it tries to get as much resources, but it also try and kill other cells around it because it's trying to compete. You know, that's, that's the, the huge sort of evolutionary jump is from the unicellular to the multicellular. And when you look at cancer, what's so 
fascinating is that when you look at the genes that are mutated in cancer, they're not random. They're actually concentrated at that point in evolutionary history between the unicelled and multicelled organism. So that is the sort of critical differentiating stage between cancerous cells and non-cancerous cells. So, you know, when I was reading it, honestly, I was just sort of, just sort of like, wow, this all makes sense. And it's so interesting that people have come up with these sort of ideas and sort of this huge advance in, in knowledge of cancer that I had sort of no idea about and nobody's talking about. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And I was also really fascinated by one of those characteristics you just talked about as far as like the energy generation of the cells and cancer cells and how they use the Warburg effect. So basically, you know, they choose to use glycolysis, even though they're in the presence of oxygen and they could be generating more energy in a different manner. So why do cancer cells choose that as their preferred method of metabolism? Yeah, this has been the object of a lot of speculation over the years. So, you know, the thing about normal cells is that they can generate energy in two different ways. Sort of glycolysis is where you take the glucose and you burn it without oxygen into sort of two ATP, which is the unit of energy, plus two lactic acid. And that's what happens when there's not enough oxygen. So if you're running a very fast sprint, you're a sprinter the blood flow is not enough to deliver oxygen. So you actually generate a lot of energy through glycolysis. When there's plenty of oxygen, you can take the same glucose molecule and burn it with oxygen to generate not just two ATP, but 36 ATP. So you're generating a lot more energy per unit glucose in oxidative phosphorylation. So if you, you'd think that in a very energy sort of in a situation where you need a lot of energy, such as growth, like cancer cells grows, you need a lot of energy. You'd think that you'd choose oxidative phosphorylation, but they don't. Almost all cancers choose glycolysis. So that's been a very big paradox. So you'd say, why should cancer do that? You know, it's like, you know, making a nice race car and, you know, making it nice and sleek and then taking out the big 600 horsepower engine and putting in a nine horsepower lawnmower engine. It's like, why are you doing that? Like, it doesn't make sense. So that's been the speculation for a lot of years as to why cancer does it. And it seems to be that, again, once you apply the sort of veil of evolutionary biology, you start to see some of the advantages of using glycolysis for the cancer cell. That is, the cancer cell needs to not only generate glucose for growth, uh, generate ATP, I should say, for growth, but it also needs to generate organic molecules. To grow. That is, if you're building a new cell, then a new cancer cell, if it divides and it grows, you need not just energy, but also mass. So it's like if you're building a house, you need the builders, but you need, also need bricks. Like you can't go anywhere without bricks. The idea is that if you generate the energy through glycolysis, you take your glucose, you, take, you get two ATP, which is energy, but you get two lactic acid, which you can then use to grow. And maybe that's a big enough advantage because you're providing both the sort of energy and the building materials. So it's actually a much more efficient way to grow. The second thing is that in a situation where you have lots of glucose, that higher efficiency is just not that big an advantage. That is, you get 
36 ATP per glucose. But what if you have hundreds of thousands of excess molecules of glucose just sitting around in a dumpster? Well, being more efficient user of glucose isn't any big advantage. So in these days when people are generally overweight and have, have excessive amounts of glucose, such as type 2 diabetes, that sort of energy efficiency is not a big advantage. So what looks like a huge advantage isn't. And then the third thing is that that lactic acid may actually play a role in making it easier. Remember, these cells are sort of growing and competing with other cells. So dumping lactic acid and making your surroundings more acidic is a way to sort of prevent other cells from sort of invading your territory. So there's several advantages to glycolysis, which may explain why cancers preferentially choose glycolysis over oxidative phosphorylation. So it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of theoretical point, but one that's only made clear once you start looking at it from this different paradigm and understanding it. Well, I think of it from the cancer standpoint it's way better to use glycolysis. So that's why it does what it does. Do normal cells use the byproducts of glycolysis in beneficial ways or just cancerous cells? No, just cancerous cells because there's no reason. There's no reason. So the only reason we use glycolysis is when there's not enough oxygen. So if there's, if there's plenty of oxygen, our cells almost always choose glycolysis because remember, our cells are not trying to grow. That is, your liver is not trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger until it's the size of your whole body, right? Your liver only wants to stay the same size, whereas cancer cells are trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? That one centimeter cancer wants to get to two centimeter and three, four or five. That cancerous cell is trying to keep growing as much as it possibly can, whereas normal cells are not trying to grow. They're trying to just stay the same. So this is a super theoretical question, but does studying cancer possibly hold the secrets to immortality for us, like the mechanisms of action that cancer is using? It, it has some applications, but it's mostly interesting as a disease of itself. Like cancer is an immortal cell, but that immortality is part and package of a whole different suite of differences. That is, it's a competitive, it's less, you know, it, it's, it's, even though the cell itself is immortal, it's like a unicellular organism. So it's a much more primitive sort of existence. It's, it's hard at this point to really take those lessons and say, can we apply this and then say, our, you know, make our own cells immortal. It does have some implication in terms of, you know, if you're trying to make immortality, you may wind up getting a lot of cancer too because all these things sort of go with each other. But, but it's an interesting theoretical sort of construct to say, well, can we get certain parts of this cancerous cell and not others? But right now, it'd be very difficult to do so. So I guess like the direct correlation would be kind of like a multicellular cell turning into a single unicellular cell. It'd be like a human reverting to a yeast to become immortal. Yeah, it's it, exactly because not only yes you would be immortal but you'd also lose specialized functions like you know a yeast has to do all of its own a single cell has to do everything so grow and feed and 
reproduce and you know it's it's so less so much less specialized than what a human could do you actually can't get any of those additional functions so so as we move from unicellular sort of immortal organisms we actually had to build in so these new sort of genes on top to control those sort of urges so we actually you know, where cells were immortal, we actually had to make a whole way to make them not. That's during our evolution that that's what happened because otherwise we couldn't control that, those sort of unicellular sort of urges in another way. So it, it's an interesting sort of theoretical point. But yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating way to look at cancer as this sort of evolutionary movement forwards or backwards in time. I did want to touch, since you just brought it up backwards in time, that was one part of the book I really loved was your discussion of convergent evolution compared to atavism. And basically the idea that, like you already mentioned it before, but that we are evolving backwards and rediscovering traits in a way that the cell already has. Yeah. So the, the, the whole idea is that, you know, if you have that sort of original programming, that sort of original kernel of cancer, that was never destroyed as we evolved. We just built on top of it. So therefore, when we remove all the stuff on top, we expose the sort of core, which is what cancer actually is, which makes a lot more sense than sort of, sort of evolving forwards and then everybody looking exactly the same, which was always a strange sort of, you know, it, it was what the the sort of somatic mutation theory postulated, but it was truly preposterous to say that. One big question also involving what we just talked about and tying everything in together with, you know, the larger bulk of your work, but as far as energy generation goes. So we just talked about how cancer, you know, preferentially often uses glycolysis and glucose, but you do talk in the book about how it can really fuel on a lot of different things. So fasting, does cancer, can it run off of ketones ever? Can it run off of fatty acids? Fasting and cancer, what goes on with all of that? It can actually. So people used to say, well, cancer needs glucose, but that's not strictly true. There are other cancers that can live on certain proteins, for example, glutamine. And they've also shown that certain cancers can live off fatty acids. So Remember, if you look at the cancer as a single-celled organism, it's advantageous to be able to use different fuel sources. So it can use carbohydrates, which is easy for it to do, but it can also use proteins and fats if it needs to as well. That is something that, again, is, is a relatively new information. But the point is that if you, know, if you have a cancer cell the way that you control it through fasting is that you're decreasing growth signaling. So when you eat foods, you actually have nutrient sensors in your body that will tell your body, for example, that food is available. So when you eat, insulin, for example, goes up and tells you you're eating. Another nutrient sensor called mTOR tells you you're eating protein. So those happen not only to be nutrient sensors, but they also happen to be very powerful growth factors. So when your body senses that food is available, it tells your cells grow, grow, grow. And when you have cancer cells, it will follow the exact same thing and try to grow, grow, grow. And therefore, if you have a situation where you have too much insulin, not only are you going to be sort of overweight because you have, you're eating sort of 
you, you know, more than you should. But you're also signaling your body to grow more than it should. And therefore, it's going to tip the scales towards cancer because you're, you're, you've got sort of more growth signaling compared to sort of signals to stop growth. And that's, that's important because if you, if you know that insulin is a very important growth factor for cancer, you can change your diet in a way that you're going to minimize this insulin signaling. You can do intermittent fasting, which is, again, going to lower your insulin levels and tell your cells to not grow. And that's, you know, hopefully one effective strategy to lower the risk of cancer. We don't have that data, of course, but of course, if you if you fast, then you're going to try. You're going to hopefully be able to maintain a normal weight, and we know that being overweight increases your risk of cancer a significant amount. Hi, friends! An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement: the brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash Danger Coffee. 
and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support 
support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. And what are your thoughts on the potential cost benefit of, let's say, fasting coupled with, you know, periods of overeating? So higher mTOR stimulation, higher insulin stimulation, but then fasted periods compared to like low to moderate constant baseline, you know, so more like snacking throughout the day, but maybe never intensely punctuating insulin or mTOR because of your dietary choices. Because Jen and I on the intermittent fasting podcast talk about this a lot. Like if somebody had to choose between a healthy, quote, (laughs) healthy diet eating throughout the day compared to fasting, but you know, maybe less healthful choices in your eating window. Do you have any thoughts on the comparison between there? Is it even a comparison worth making? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's certainly something there. I mean, there's there's clearly a huge, and, and not all of this is very well defined at this current point. We've got very little research into sort of diet and nutrition at this point. So it'd be great to be able to pinpoint these sort of 
you know, oh, you should do this, you should do this, you should cycle this way. We're not at that stage, I don't think, where we can say that. What we've done, of course, in terms of nutrition and cancer, we've studied all kinds of risk factors, but we haven't zeroed in on sort of insulin and that sort of thing. We've looked at you know fiber, we've looked at dietary fat, we've looked at their various uh, vitamin deficiencies. So we've looked at all different reasons that people thought that diet might influence cancer risk. None of them turned out to have any influence. So at this point, the best you can say, and it's sort of not very satisfying, I suppose, but the most you could say is, well, if you're overweight, then you should try to lose weight because we know being overweight increases your risk. I mean, the World Health Organization lists 13 different types of cancer as obesity-related cancer. So therefore, if you have an obesity-related cancer, we know that you're going to likely reduce your risk by being normal weight. The second thing you can say is that type 2 diabetes significantly increases your risk of cancer as well. So if you have type 2 diabetes, you should try to reverse your type 2 diabetes. And again, both conditions of obesity and type 2 diabetes are sort of diseases of too much insulin. And therefore, fasting is going to help you reduce that insulin. And by reducing the insulin, you're going to lower your risk of cancer. So it's not a very satisfying sort of thing to say, but that's really as far as you can take it right now. You can't say, oh, you should fast for 16 hours, you know, twice a week and you won't get cancer. Like we're not that granular yet. We're sort of really at that very basic level. And there's lots of different ways, of course, to lower your insulin levels if you, if you have too much insulin, right? It's not necessarily that you have to fast all the time. You could change the foods that you eat, for example. And you could eat a lower carbohydrate diets. And even within the carbohydrates, you could change the type of carbohydrates you eat because certain ones are going to be more stimulating than others to insulin. So there's lots of different ways to do it. It's not all sort of one size fits all. I just have one really last quick question. I'm just dying to know your thoughts. So I brought on a lot of people on the show who are advocates of low-carb diets and fasting and things like that for, for managing insulin. But then I've also brought on people like Cyrus and Robbie who wrote Mastering Diabetes and you know people in the, the high-carb, low-fat world. Do you have any thoughts on those approaches for managing insulin? I just feel like I'm constantly seeing both sides of the, the low-carb versus high-carb war. It's not the carbohydrates per se. It's really a fact that you have excessive insulin. So you could eat a high-carb diet and still not stimulate insulin. So if you look at the Catavans, and this is a South Pacific Islanders, they ate a diet that was somewhere around 70% carbohydrate. And in the 70s, I think, when they were being studied, one of the researchers there from Sweden compared these Catavans to a sort of reference Swedish population. And remember, the Swedes are very fit. And what he found was that the insulin levels of these sort of this high carb diet, the, 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 the catavans, was at around five percentile. That is 95% of the Swedish population, the healthy Swedish population, had an insulin level that was higher than the average sort of catavan who's eating this very high carb diet. So it's not necessarily the carbohydrates that is driving your insulin. So the disease is a disease of too much insulin. And lowering the insulin can take one of many ways to go down. I mean, if you eat a high-carbohydrate diet, you certainly can and still have very low insulin levels. But you can't be eating all the time. And you can't be eating a lot of refined foods. So 
if you're eating things like white bread, it's much more stimulating to insulin than, say, a, even a boiled potato or something like that. There's, you can see it on these glycemic indexes where you look at beans, for example, which is carbohydrate compared to, say, you know, a cookie. There's a huge gap. So it's not just about the carbohydrate. It's a useful construct. That is, if you're eating less carbohydrate, you certainly can do well. Same thing in China in the 1980s. The people are eating white rice all over, like a lot of white rice, like 300 grams of carbohydrate a day, yet very, very little obesity, very little uh, type 2 diabetes. So it's the other things that were important. How often did they eat? What else did they eat? Did they eat a lot of sugar? So there, there are other things that are important in the diet that will control your insulin is not just the carbohydrate. So getting into this sort of, oh, it's the carbs or it's not the carbs, it's not the whole answer, right? It's like if your car breaks down, it's not like, you know, it's because you ran out of gas. Yeah, it might be, or it might be because your fan belt broke, or it might be because you know, your spark plugs didn't work or whatever it is. There's lots of different things that can go wrong. So there's lots of different ways to get there. People confuse the insulin part with the carbs. Just because you eat a lot of carbs doesn't always mean that your insulin levels are going to be high. If you eat sort of refined carbs and you're eating 10 times a day, then yes, you are going to have a high insulin level. Unfortunately, that's been the standard American diet. But it, it, it's also among, there's lots of other things that control it. So if you are eating, you know, if you eat, eat a certain food all the time, it's, you're, you're not going to, you're going to lose weight. So because the problem with foods, like if you ate pizza, which is a very, you know, lots of people like pizza, but if you ate pizza four or five, six times a day, every single day for three years, like you would probably lose weight. You know why? <laughs> Because you probably wouldn't be able to stand another slice of pizza. So you would eat as little pizza as you possibly could so that you're not hungry. And then that would be it, right? So when you take away food variability, for example, so in China, you've got white rice and vegetables every single day. That's all you eat. You really just don't really want to eat because you don't want another meal of white rice and vegetables. But it'd be the same if it was pizza. It'd be the same for almost any other thing that's a highly restricted diet. Now you've taken away all variety. And you know after eating it for so long, you really just don't want to eat. And therefore, you don't. Well, you're going to lower your insulin level. So you can do that with a vegetarian diet. You could do it with a high-carb diet. You could do it with a low-carb diet. Any of those will work just fine. But in the end, what happens, of course, is that you're eating you know, in a way that your insulin levels are going to be lower, your nutrient sensors are going to be lowered. So there's, there's lots of different ways. And that's why I'm never really one to say, oh, you have to eat this way or you have to eat that way. Fasting is really just a tool that you use to bring your insulin levels down. So it allows you some flexibility because if you want to eat a variety of foods, then you can as long as you're not eating all the time. It's just a different strategy. Instead of restricting certain foods all the time, you restrict all foods some of the time. So it's a different strategy and it works very well for a lot of people. But this is why I try not to get in the middle of these sort of high carb versus low carb debates because you certainly can do very well with a high carb diet. It's, it's, it's been done for years. Like the Irish ate a lot of potatoes. The Chinese ate a lot of rice. I mean, 
you know, the Mexicans ate a lot of beans. I mean, the, these traditional diets have had that. Indians ate a lot of rice. And, you know, most of Southeast Asia ate a lot of rice. And, you know, it's uh, people ate a lot of bread in the past. It, it can be done. So that's sort of my take on it. It's, it's, we're sort of confusing the diet, like the things that we eat, and we're trying to become sort of these break, you know, say that all carbs are the same or, you know, it's not. All carbs are different. The, the, how refined a carbohydrate is, is plays a big role in the, the insulin effect. So it's not just your grams of carbohydrate. It's also how refined they are and how often you eat them. So yeah, bringing everything full circle, it's kind of like the confusions and the misconceptions with cancer and the mutations and not for taking in the, the bigger picture and the context and the environment and everything. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely amazing. My listeners, like I said, are probably very familiar with your work, but is there anything else that you'd like to touch on, put out there? How can people best follow your work? Follow me on Twitter and Instagram, for example. The handle is at Dr. Jason Fung. That's Dr. Jason Fung. I'm also doing a lot more YouTube videos these days, sort of covering the basics of all that. So that's also good. So you can check me out on YouTube. And then my website is called thefastingmethod.com. And there's a lot of sort of blogs and other resources that might be of interest to people. So yeah, you can check me out there. Perfect. So I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Very last question. I promise it's easy. It's the last question that I ask every single guest on this show. And it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm always grateful that I have the opportunity to sort of get the message out there. Like it's, it's an opportunity that's, for example, didn't exist, you know, before social media and blogs and all this sort of stuff where you could sort of just give information to people for free. And hopefully they can take that information and make their lives better or, you know, lose weight or reverse their type two diabetes or lower their risk of cancer. And it's, it's a real privilege to be able to do that because it always sort of makes me feel very good that when somebody says, Oh, you know, I listened to this guy and, you know, I started doing it and I lost all this weight and I got off all my medications and even my doctor's astounded. And it's like, that's great because, you know, we have such an opportunity here to help other people. And it's not by selling them stuff or, you know, putting them in a program or whatever it is. It's just by sharing knowledge and, you know, stuff that's logical. So I'm always grateful that, you know, I live in a time, I suppose, that this is something that can happen and hopefully brings, you know, a lot of good to a lot of people. So fasting, of course, is not new. It's been around for thousands of years but it's been forgotten about and hopefully we can bring it back to a point where people actually will be able to make themselves healthier. And it would be amazing to, you know, to be able to do that. That's sort of, you know, what I want to do is just make everybody, you know, healthier and give them the tools they need to control them, you know, their, their diseases, you know, not put them on medications and do surgery and all that. That's, that's, that's not, that's not healing right? That's, that's, you know, it's, it, it, that's just a business. 
Well, I love hearing that so much. And you are definitely 100% truly doing that. And I am truly forever grateful for your work. And so is, I'm sure, the entirety of my audience. So thank you so much for this. And hopefully we can connect again in the future. This has been incredible. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.